This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. As the COVID-19 surge continues, the rhetoric around mask wearing shows no signs of cooling down. More school districts, meanwhile, are defying the governor's order banning mask mandates and requiring students to wear masks. Dr. Ross McKinney is the Chief Scientific Officer with the Association of American Medical Colleges. He's a paediatric infectious disease expert as well. Thank you for joining us, Dr. McKinney. It's nice to have you along. It's nice to be here. Also joined by Judy Hayes. She's a parent with two children in the Orange County Public School System, one of whom has Down syndrome. She's also signed on to a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit against the state of Florida over the ban on mask mandates. Uh, The lawsuit alleges that the ban is a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Judy, thank you as well for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with some of the basics. There is a CDC study um, out there which was conducted in elementary schools in Georgia, and it casts some doubt on the value of school kids wearing masks. The study was highlighted by David Zweig in the New York Magazine, an article entitled, The Science of Masking Kids at School Remains Uncertain. That study found that schools where masks use was mandated among students did not have a statistically significant lower incidence of COVID compared to schools where mask use was optional among students. However, the study also pointed out that it didn't take into account compliance or actual mask use among kids at these schools. Dr. McKinney, I know we're, in terms of research into the impacts of COVID on uh, paediatric cases, it's still kind of new, right? We're still at the early stages of figuring out what this disease does and how it behaves. But I wanted to get your perspective on that. What is the value of kids wearing masks, you know, whether it's mandated or whether it's optional? What, what good does it do in schools? Well, my perspective comes from a uh, study that was run by something called the ABC Collaborative, which was basically all the school systems in the state of North Carolina. So uh, the NIH funded a project um, that uh, looked at um, uh, whether masks uh, and spacing could be used in schools to uh, prevent uh, infection. And the answer was, yeah, that basically there were very, very few infections in the school setting um, once masks were used and were expected to be uh, in place. So the combination of vaccinating the adults in the environment and masks on the kids um, is probably as good as we can get. And I think it's on sound um, scientific principles. Variables like, you know, whether mask mandates are enforced or how masks are used, what kinds of masks to use, like how how many of those factors are kind of critical and whether masks are effective or not with, with uh, kids? I think that the, the nature of the mask is somewhat less critical. Any mask reduces the amount of particulate that somebody will distribute. And so once you start uh, decreasing, um, you know, First, you decrease the amount that's uh, uh, emoted by the child by putting on a mask. And then you also reduce the probability that they're going to actually get enough particles to be infectious on their mouth and nose by putting on a mask. So you're catching it at both ends. So so I feel, you know, like it's 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 pretty sound basis. Mm -hmm. Um, Add in. um, uh, Do you expect uh, the kids to wear their mask. If you're going to have a mask mandate, yeah, you expect the kids to wear their mask. You expect the teachers to enforce it. And the one place where that's proved to be a challenge has been in the lunchroom. So how schools set up their lunchrooms operations. Um, I, I know, for example, my grandchildren are at a school where they've divided it into a um, the lunch group so that they're split up. Half of them eat outdoors, half of them eat in the uh, gymnasium. They're spread out. Uh, some schools, everybody is facing the same direction so that the kids and, and 
talking at lunch is not generally allowed. Mm -hmm. So that's that's where the biggest hole has been to this point. In the classroom, wearing a mask, you're not generating aerosols because the kids aren't talking that much. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the combination of masks uh, and, and the fact that in general, kids are not talking a lot in the classroom setting means that there's not going to be that much transmission there. Are you familiar with that study, the, the CDC study that I, that I mentioned earlier, which looked at um, school kids in Georgia? I was not familiar with the Georgia study. I was familiar with the one in North Carolina because uh, uh, Danny Benjamin and Kanisha Zimmerman, who did it, um, are people who I know. So as far as uh, you know, people saying there's a downside to masking, thinking about things like social development, other issues, um, especially for younger children uh, who, who may be in a situation where they have to wear masks for the better part of the school day, what are those downsides? Like, what, What's your perspective on, on some of the problems with masks? The downsides to wearing a mask are, are often just communication skills. It's just, it is harder to hear each other. Um, it's harder to articulate um, if you are wearing a mask. But other than that, the kids adapt incredibly easily, much more easily than adults do because they're not as used to it. So I've watched, again, my grandchildren who are eight, eight and 11, uh, put on masks sort of routinely. It's it's not, it's now part of their, their clothing. They wouldn't you know, go to school without a mask anywhere mm -hmm. and they wouldn't go without sneakers. Um, so it's uh, it, it quickly becomes part of the background. And I think it's much more, uh, uh, has much more effect on adults. I don't see any effect on the kids to being masked, um, any negative effect to the kids being masked other than just the need to become habituated to it. Judy Hayes, I wonder if I could bring you into this conversation. Orange County Public Schools, the school board, um, voting this week and joining the list of school boards to essentially buck the state order and impose a, a mask mandate. It's a, a temporary one, of course. Um, there is a medical opt-out for students observing that and, and um, given your particular situation, how does that make you feel about having your kids back at school in the um, Orange County public school system? In particular, your son, Will, I believe, right? Right. Thank you. So Will is the one who's 10 and has Down syndrome, is, is supposed to be in fourth grade, um, still is not back yet. He's still at home. Uh, it does make me feel a little bit better. My older son, Jack, is 13. He's in eighth grade. And from day one, we've been getting calls about positive cases he was exposed actually on his first day of school, the 10th. We were notified on the 13th that he was, had been exposed, got a quick test. He had no symptoms. He wears two masks. He's vaccinated. So he was able to go back to school. Um, but I'm hoping that now that we are masking everyone on campus, that we'll cut down on just the sheer volume of cases that we've seen. We have, we've been open for two weeks. Um, I think today is day 12 of school and we're well over 2,500 active cases in Orange County, which is tremendous. It, it's an unacceptably large number. Um, so the mask mandate, it does make me feel a lot better about potentially sending Will back. Um, it doesn't ameliorate all of the problems that we were looking at, but it is a good step in the right direction. And it makes me feel better about having Jack on campus, less concerned that he would potentially bring something back home. Um, mm -hmm. We resolved the lunch issue independently by just he has a half day and he comes home before lunch. So that's not even an issue for him. So we're trying to mitigate whatever we can. Mm -hmm. 
What about the lawsuit? Um, you know, given what's happened in Orange County, at least, and with a lot of school districts across the state of Florida that represent a lot of the school children in the public school system, essentially saying we are now going to put mask mandates in place, despite what the governor has has ordered. Um, is that lawsuit continuing? It is. Um, so actually, I do have some figures for you. Orange County became the ninth, and then I think Indian River County followed us to become the tenth school district in Florida to impose a mask mandate. Um, and that means that now more than 50% of school children in the state of Florida are attending schools where there's a mask mandate in contravention of the governor's directive. So we're get, we're headed in the right direction. Um, but that's only one piece of the relief that we were seeking in the federal lawsuit. There's a state lawsuit that's proceeding and it's actually being heard today on Wednesday. And in our case, we are proceeding under, there are some other things that need to be resolved, um, including but not limited to accessing synchronous virtual learning for kids who are quarantined, for kids who have disabilities who still aren't able to safely come to school. Uh, That's also kind of under the purview of the executive order of the governor and the ed commissioner. So we are still pursuing those, Um, but it, it is really, it's, it warms my heart. It makes me feel good that we're moving in the right direction and some of the districts are kind of seeing that this is a real problem and they're doing what they can do to address it. What do you make of, I guess, the rhetoric around masks? Because it seems hard to kind of see beyond the politics to the science of it, right, Judy? How does that affect you as a parent, thinking about the the heated rhetoric around masks and whether or not to wear them? I mean, to me, I think it's nonsense. I think it's a straw man. I think the people who are complaining about the mask mandates don't acknowledge that we're not talking about punishing kids who legitimately can't wear a mask in school. I think it needs to be reframed so that we're not talking about who gets exempted. Nobody should need an exemption. The schools know which kids in their in their communities are going to struggle with wearing masks. Little kids, maybe kids who have autism spectrum disorders or respiratory issues, and they're going to help those kids to wear their masks appropriately. And I think that injecting the kind of culture war theory that masks are oppressive or they're taking away my freedoms. I I think that's a straw man. And I think we never should have given that particular opinion any oxygen because it's it's just like a seatbelt. Like you might not like wearing a seatbelt, but you got to wear a seatbelt. Dr. McKinney, does it make it difficult as a physician to to talk to people pro or con about some of these issues when there is this kind of level of of heat, um, maybe more heat than light over some of these issues, like whether or not to wear masks? Yeah, it's been interesting because people don't always act in a rational way um, as they as we discuss vaccines and masks. I mean, it's what what is the logic to not uh, uh, the freedom imposition of wearing a mask when you're protecting others and you're protecting yourself? That's just contributing to the community. And the fact that we have an awful lot of people who seem not to care about protecting themselves and others is actually disheartening. Um, and then the same thing's true with vaccination. Why why the, this opposition to vaccination when you protect yourself and you protect others? It's how we will get rid of this epidemic. It's almost like there's some people who must be invested in wanting to maintain the epidemic, that we've got this massive amount of money going into opposition to vaccinations, which is just good common sense. And I might add, I looked up that study in Georgia and the, the schools, the districts that had um, uh, masks had a 37% lower rate of infection than the schools that did not require masks. So masks were there. The reason I hadn't paid much attention to it is it looked like masks worked, which is the same thing that the uh, North Carolina study showed. 
Right. Although in, uh, I'll point out that in the fine print, it, it was talking about more the, the impact of the staff and, and teachers wearing masks rather than the, the students. But yeah, that, that is a, a stat from that study. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Dr. Ross McKinney, Chief Scientific Officer with the Association of American Medical Colleges, and Judy Hayes. She's a parent with two kids in the Orange County Public School System, uh, talking about the return to school uh, across the nation and in Florida and uh, issue of masks and vaccines. Um Dr. McKinney, just on the issue of, you know, how people react and respond to directives and, and you know, how we're coping with this pandemic on the informational level, um, I, I think it has been a little tricky to kind of figure out what to do when the, the guidance from the CDT, for example, has been, it, it hasn't always been clear, right? There's been some opacity to it. There's been some kind of change in direction. I think that's hard for people to wrap their heads around. So, how do you how do you kind of navigate through that and say, well, the CDC might have been saying two months ago, do this. They've changed their guidance now, but this is why you should still follow those guidelines. Yeah, well, and it's what we've been watching happen is, you know, our our evolution of understanding of this disease is happening. The CDC is being caught in that. Now, I, I don't think the CDC has always handled their communications the way they should. I think there are a lot of times they truly have been opaque. There are a lot of times they've been inconsistent. I think some of, for example, their uh, release of the mask mandate um, was premature. Um, so they're, they, they have made what I would perceive to be mistakes. On the other hand, we keep learning more. And, and then you get things like Delta. I mean, that's through a turn. If you look, for example, our advice about, um, you know, what is the risk of a vaccinated person? Well, if you looked at the earlier variants like Alpha and, and if you were vaccinated, you just didn't shed much virus. So you weren't likely to ever spread it to anybody else. So that's how you could get you know, out of wearing masks once you're vaccinated. With Delta, unfortunately, you do excrete virus um, if you're vaccinated. You're less likely to get infected. You're much less likely to get sick, um, but you still, when you shed, will shed a fair bit of virus and be contagious. So the rules changed when the virus changed and, and you know, in an evolving epidemic, that's going to happen. Judy, as a parent, has it been difficult to try and assimilate what you're hearing from local leaders, from federal agencies about what to do next? Do you feel like that has added to a you know a certain amount of trepidation about where we're headed with this virus and this pandemic? Absolutely. You know, in Florida, we've had a really difficult time getting information from the Department of Health who now is managing, say, contact tracing and quarantining through the schools, and it's woefully inadequate. I mean, the only thing we can count on consistently is the inconsistency of the information that we're getting, and it's not being provided to us in a timely manner. I have a thousand anecdotal stories of people, families like ours, the parents will get a notification that their child's quarantined after the quarantine would have ended. And then, you know, this we're seeing this everywhere. Or in, you know, in our case, a kid came home from school on Friday, found out that he had been exposed on Tuesday. So I had already, you know, my kids are all over each other wrestling and playing and everything. So for three days, we didn't know that we were supposed to be quarantining them. So then all of a sudden we're in a panic again. Um, it's, it's kind of terrifying and we can't rely on the state to provide that information in a timely fashion. They're providing some information, which is almost worse than having no information because you look at our county dashboard, you know, they publish numbers every night of active cases when they were reported and active quarantines. Um, and if you assume that that data is accurate and timely, 
then you might make certain decisions. Whereas if you had the actual data and if I knew that there were six cases reported in my son's middle school on one day, I might not want to send him to school the next day. But then what do you do? You know, we don't have options for learning at home and kids, especially the kids who are in upper level classes, don't want to miss those days. You know, we have friends whose kids are taking AP classes. They're going to have to take an exam at the end of the year and can't necessarily self-quarantine for 10 days and miss all of that material. Hmm. So it is, it's a terrifying time to be a parent of a school-aged child in Florida. Dr. McKinney, do you think that extrapolates to the rest of the country? Like, what are you hearing from other states where they're in the throes of uh, having kids return to school en masse as well? I think parents all over the country are anxious about this process. Now, there are some states that have made it harder. You can feel like you've got a little control if you know that the kids are going in and they're all masked and, and the schools are setting up expectations that the teachers and staff will be vaccinated. Then you can start as a parent to feel a little bit more comfortable. And those states that are allowing or requiring uh, teachers and staff to be vaccinated, and there are states that are doing that, particularly now that the uh, vaccine is fully approved, and, and then kids wearing masks, they're, they're more comfortable. Just to clarify, Dr. McKinney, which states are requiring teachers to be vaccinated? Um, we are starting at school districts rather than states. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my local school districts are requiring teachers uh, and staff to be vaccinated. I don't know that it's a state level. It's at a, it's at a system level. And which district is that? Uh, I'm in Orange County, but Orange County, North Carolina. Gotcha. So it's a, um, and, and looking at the schools. And so, and mm. I, I think that we're seeing more, more districts. I think we will continue to. So, well, that's an individual example. We're going to see more and more who are going to require it. Just thinking about the overall well-being of, of kids in general, in Florida, at least last year from the school setting was a bit of an experiment that with the hybrid model of learning, some kids at home learning remotely, others in the classroom it seems from what we've heard from parents and teachers that that experiment didn't really work that well. It was difficult for everybody involved. In general, Dr. McKinney, do you think it's better to have kids back in the class with mitigation measures than trying to slug it out remotely? Unequivocally. I mean, I think kids, it is so critical. You know, you think about what it's like to be a second grader. You know, it's learning how to be social. It's learning how to interact with your friends. It's learning what the rules are. It's, you know, you stand in line. You learn to stand in line. You learn to how to follow certain rules. You learn how to read more effectively. And all those social things that are so critical to kids don't happen through hybrid um, learning. You may learn specific skills like, you know, read this book. But, but you don't learn all that other stuff about interaction, so important, uh, the socialization of childhood. So I, I think it's really important that we keep working to keep kids in schools using all the measures we can uh, to make that safe. Judy, what are your thoughts? Because you mentioned before that there isn't now that that option. You know, if you want to, if you feel like it's not safe to send your kid back, you don't have the fallback of saying they can log into, in this case, in Orange County, Florida, it's launched to you know, to, to do that class. So how do you feel about the, the weighing up of being in, in class in person with mitigation measures versus uh, having the option of learning at home? Well, I think if we had the option of going to school in person with mitigation measures, obviously that's ideal for everyone, you know, and there's no, there's no questioning that. Um, the problem is in Florida, the governor is preventing us from implementing mitigation measures. Um, you know, we're not allowed to insist that everyone wear a mask. And it's not as simple as, well, if you want to wear a mask, your kid can wear a mask. And that's, you know, a popular talking point. But it just completely glosses over how masks actually work. 
Um, so we've been lobbying for the virtual piece just to remain accessible as a backup for kids who need to be home and quarantining um, and maybe for kids who are immunocompromised and truly cannot come to school until you know we're at a 5% rolling positivity rate. Our county is now at a 19% rolling positivity rate and it, it isn't safe to go into school where there aren't mitigation measures. So, you know, in, in almost every instance that in-person learning is ideal for everyone. Um, we just were hoping that we would have the leeway to implement the virtual synchronous piece as a backup, you know, for the kids who, who need it. Even if it's, you know, a kid who wakes up in the morning and feels sick and doesn't want to go to school and infect their friends, they would have that option to keep up with their schoolwork. But we want to get, you know, we want to get Will back into class more than anything else. He misses his friends and his teachers and his routine. And he really thrived on, you know, that in-person learning and socialization. And that's one of the best things about having a child who has special needs being included in a typical education environment is that opportunity for them to learn socialization from their peers, but also for their peers to get socialized with them, you know, so the next generation of moms who find out that they're having a baby with Down syndrome will think, well, Will was in my class in third grade and Will's awesome and I'm going to have a baby like that and that's really cool. Um, just to see that disability is natural and it's a part of the fabric of our lives. And if all the kids with disabilities aren't able to go to school, that's an entire generation of kids who are missing out on that opportunity to learn that from their peers. When do you think you'll be back in class? I don't know. <laughs> um, we're hoping that it would be soon. I I have no idea. You know, we're kind of operating on a day-by-day -day basis here, um, hoping that we can get him into something sooner than later because we're already two weeks into the school year and, you know, life is kind of passing him by and we want him to get back to school, but we also want to keep him safe. So that's kind of just a daily balance that we have to weigh out. Mm -hmm. I want to thank uh, both of you for joining me. Uh, Judy Hayes, a parent with two kids in the Orange County Public School System. Uh, she's also part of a lawsuit against the state of Florida over the ban on mask mandates. Thanks so much, Judy. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. And Dr. Ross McKinney, he's the Chief Scientific Officer with the Association of American Medical Colleges. Dr. McKinney, thank you as well. Uh, thank you very much. It was nice talking. Still to come, state leaders are touting monoclonal antibodies as a game changer for the pandemic. But as the surge continues to fill hospital beds and stretch staff resources, just how much of a difference will this therapy make? We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. State leaders are touting monoclonal antibodies as a game-changer for the pandemic, but the surge continues to fill hospital beds and stretch staff resources, so just how much of a difference will this therapy make? I spoke with Dr Kenneth Shepke, who's been at Governor Ron DeSantis' side at press conferences across the state, where the governor has announced the opening of pop-up monoclonal antibody clinics. Dr Kenneth Shepke is the State EMS Medical Director with the Florida Department of Health. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Uh, I actually wear two hats. I have the State EMS Medical Director for, for the Florida Department of Health, but I, as well as that, I serve as the Chief Medical Officer for the Florida Division of Emergency Management. Indeed. Well, um, I know you want to talk about monoclonal antibodies, but I also wanted to ask you about um, the vaccinations, because obviously the big news this week, the FDA giving full approval to the Pfizer vaccine. How big of a difference do you think that will make to people who may have been on the fence about getting vaccinated because those vaccines were not yet fully approved? 
Well, I'm very happy you're asking about that because that is actually our strategy. We have a two-pronged strategy here. We really need the vaccines on the prevention arm, and then we have the monoclonals on the treatment arm. And I think you're exactly right. There, I've spoken to a number of folks uh, who've been waiting to see kind of how the vaccine rollout occurred and how some of the longer-term side effects, et cetera. And they, were, they were a little unsure of the vaccine, and many of them expressed to me that they were uncomfortable taking a vaccine that was under emergency use authorization only, and they were really waiting for the full FDA approval. So I'm really hopeful that we're going to see an uptick in our vaccinations among those, those people that were really waiting for that full FDA approval, which is, as you know, going to help us out on the prevention side. It's clearly the best way to prevent severe illness, hospitalization, and death. I think we've all heard about these breakthrough vaccine, breakthrough infections, even in the mm-hmm. vaccinated folks. But by and large, the vaccine's been holding up on those more severe complications. Do you think the state of Florida is doing enough to push back against misinformation on vaccines and promote their safety in any case? Well, I think we're doing what we can. Uh, you know, the, we've, pretty much every site that we've gone to where, where we have the press involved, we talk about the vaccinations. We, we talk about how that's the most important preventive measure we've got. Obviously, we're promoting the monoclonal antibodies because so many people did not even know about that. Right. Um, just looking at the numbers, too, I think it's about 10.5 million people fully vaccinated and a further 2.1 million or so have had at least one dose. Um, where would you like to be or where do you think the state of Florida would like to be? What's the goal for, for vaccinations? I, I mean, is full vaccination a, a kind of an unrealistic goal? Where do you think the state should be to really get a handle on this? Well, I mean, I think the state has a we have a statewide campaign really trying to educate folks about the importance of vaccination. And clearly every eligible patient who wants to get a vaccine has had the ability to get a vaccine for many months now in the state of Florida. So we're really hopeful that the FDA full authorization now is going to convince those folks that have been kind of waiting for that to go and get that vaccine. The higher the number of people that get the vaccination, the better it will be for all of us, for the healthcare system. It'll decrease hospitalizations. It'll increase the severe disease. So it's critical that we get as many people vaccinated who are eligible as possible. So on the flip side of that, though, while you're waiting, because the vaccination will give you that protection, but it can take up to six weeks for the protection to kick in. Right. If you get infected now, what do you do? You can't wait for the vaccine to kick in. It's going to be too late for you. Obviously, you still need to get vaccinated at some point. But that's where this other treatment, the monoclonal antibodies, come in. That'll give us that immediate treatment, immediately attack the virus, and decrease your chance for hospitalization and death by 70%. Plus, if you're not yet vaccinated and you've been exposed, again, too late for the vaccine to save you in that situation. You need treatment on that. You need post-exposure prophylaxis in that case. And even for the folks that are vaccinated, but we know the vaccine, while it works really well for the majority of people and it's quite safe, we know there are some people with underlying medical conditions, whether it be advanced age or immunosuppressant medications, organ transplants, et cetera, Right. where the vaccine might not give them full protection, and they may get a serious breakthrough infection where now what are you going to do? Again, the answer is the monoclonal antibodies. And thanks to Governor DeSantis for doing this tour around Florida, I think we've really raised the awareness both in the public and in the medical community. Quite frankly, I've, I've had several patients around the state of Florida I've tried to get this therapy for, and even physicians, while they knew that this existed, they didn't know how to access it. So This has been a clear need that I think the state is now addressing. We've got 20 or 21 of these sites around the state of Florida, uh, all within reasonable driving distance of the majority of the population now. And I think it's going to be a big game changer as far as taking the stress off of our hospital. Because we can give them a treatment 
that can keep them from ever needing that hospitalization, that'll actually decrease the load on our hospitals and give our healthcare providers some relief. I wanted to ask about hospital capacity too, because there have been, you know, we're looking at, I think, some 17,000 inpatient beds filled with, uh, or been taken for use by COVID-19 patients, according to the CDC. And in addition to that, just in the central Florida area, Advent Health reporting some 1,654 COVID positive patients. And there are also surgeons obviously reporting a backlog of cases they can't get to because of the need for treating COVID patients in the meantime. So what else could the state of Florida be doing? What should it be doing to help those hospitals? And could it do more beyond the, you know, laying in these uh, treatment uh, clinics for uh, antibodies? Well, you know, that's, that's a great question. And when you look at the data, who's actually in those hospital beds, it's, it's, Greatly, uh, the great majority is unvaccinated folks, 80, 90 percent of, of folks. And when you look at those folks, how many of them actually receive these monoclonal antibodies? We're finding out very, very few actually receive monoclonal antibodies. So if you look at the randomized controlled studies and that if you've given high risk people, not just everybody, but high risk people, these monoclonal antibodies, you could have reduced that by up to 70 percent. So it's a great strategy to release uh, to relieve some of the demand on our hospitals to get these monoclonals out there before you need the hospitalization. So now you won't actually be going into the emergency department and using up using up those resources. In the uh, meantime, though, but 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 uh, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to you know what what else could be done now to you know re- relieve the pressure on hospitals that are now dealing with this you know onrush of patients in their hospitals because. You know, the, the, the strategy to keep people out of hospitals is well and good, but there's, there is also obviously a, an, you know, an immediate need. And we're hearing from physicians, from hospital managers that they, they need help. You know, I, I don't want you to minimize the effect of monoclonal antibodies. That is the immediate help. When you give somebody monoclonal antibody therapy, within 24 hours, they're feeling better in the majority of the cases. And these are cases that would have gone to those emergency departments that would have used up some of those beds. And so this is clearly the most immediate way to stem the tide for the folks that are streaming into the hospitals is to get these people, divert them to get the immediate treatment rather than have them go and wait until they're sick and go into the hospital. So that is that's clearly one of the best immediate treatment options. And then obviously we want to combine that with a longer term strategy of getting as many people across Florida vaccinated. There have been calls over the past couple of weeks for um, the governor to declare a state of emergency to you know, help free up some more resources and, and potentially reopen state tests and vaccination sites. Do you think we're in a state of emergency in Florida with the surge we're seeing right now? Well, I think when you look at vaccinations, they're widely available. When you look at monoclonal antibodies, they're now widely available thanks to, thanks to the governor's efforts. So I, I, I think the need is not quite there at this point, but certainly I, uh, if there's any unmet needs, the state stands ready to help. I mean, how bad would it have to get? Because, you know, we're talking about 150,000 new cases, 20% positivity. Uh, and that's just in, you know, the latest report from the state of Florida, the Department of Health. And that's a lot worse than it was last year. I mean, how bad do you think it would need to get before we were in a state of emergency in Florida, if we aren't now? Well, I think we've learned a lot about how to deal with this disease, how to treat this disease. If you recall, initially, folks would be put on ventilators as a first-line therapy, and doctors really learned that you should be using high-flow nasal cannula, proning, dexamethasone. There's a number of different treatments. So I think our success rate is a lot better. The governor's made a priority to to, uh, take care of our most vulnerable, and we've got a very high vaccination rate in the the elderly population that was in that initial wave. The subsequent waves, I'm I'm hearing from the hospitals, they're a younger population. Yes, Mm -hmm. they go into the hospital, but they also get out of the hospital a lot faster. 
So you can't just go by numbers. You're not really comparing apples to apples because it, we're, we're in a different portion of, of the pandemic. In the beginning, we're all sort of feeling our way through this. And I didn't really know some of the best treatments that we now have. And the demographics of who enters our, our hospitals are quite different. This is a younger, healthier demographic that has a lower vaccination rate, which also means that they tend to have more physical reserve and tend to recover faster as well. Now, I'm not saying that the, that the Delta is not a significant threat. It is. I mean, when you look at when you look at what's called the R naught or the infection rate from the mm-hmm. original strain, it was one person on average infected two people. And that, that means that you had some hope of reaching herd immunity. But now you're at an R naught of somewhere between eight and, and, and 10, meaning one person can infect eight to 10 people, which means this thing's as contagious as chicken pox. Right. What, what that tells you is that this COVID genie is out of the, out of the bottle and we're not getting it to go back in. You know, the idea of reaching herd immunity, I mean, there are some diseases that uh, on the chicken pox level where you'd expect 90 plus percent of the population are either going to get sick or get vaccinated at some point. So we're definitely in a different scenario, and we, don't, we, we do know that Delta tends to spread a lot faster through communities. And I think really the answer is let's get as many people vaccinated as possible, because that clearly is holding up well against the severe illness, death, and hospitalization. The FDA authorization is certainly going to help with that. But this unused tool of monoclonal antibodies, I mean, this is really going to be a game changer, really, not just for Floridians, but for across the nation. You know, some of the biggest employers in the state of Florida, too, are making vaccines mandatory for employees. Disney, for example, what uh, impact do you think that's going to have on on getting that vaccination rate up in Florida? Well, I I don't know. I guess it's a little too soon to to say, you know, that private employers are allowed to do as as, certainly as they please, as, as you know. Um, but uh, it's, the, the vaccine, while I would, while I would certainly encourage it, uh, it's, uh, I, I do think it's, it's one of the best, best, ways, best ways to prevent severe illness and death. Mm-hmm. You know, people actually have to make the choice for themselves. And on the monoclonal antibody sites, can you tell me, like, how much is that costing the state of Florida to set up these, um, these sites and these clinics? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I have the, the total number for that, but the, the good news is that this, the therapy is completely free for, for the patients. The uh, medications already been paid for by by the federal government. Uh, the the state doesn't charge a dime. You have insurance. I have no insurance. We we don't care about any ability to pay. We do want to make sure you get that life life saving uh, therapy. But as far as the numbers on that, I'm, I'm not the numbers guy on that piece of it. But we might be able to get that data for you if you'd like. Well, uh, Dr. Kenneth Shipke, Chief Medical Officer for the Florida Division of Emergency Management and State EMS Medical Director with the Florida Department of Health. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. That's my pleasure. Take care. Up next, a conversation about the impact of the COVID-19 death toll on medical examiners' offices. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Crematoriums in Orange County are backing up. Crematoriums are where bodies are cremated after death. And Orange County Medical Examiner Dr. Joshua Stephanie says there are so many deaths from COVID-19 that crematoriums just can't keep up. Unfortunately, you just can't run a crematorium straight at one temperature and keep people going in. There's procedures to it. And so, you know, when when you're dealing with the amount of uh, deceased individuals in Central Florida and, and, and in Florida and in the rest of the country, everyone's getting backed up. Well, for more on the situation statewide, we are joined now by Dr. Jason Bird. He's the Associate Director for the Maple Center for Forensic Medicine at the University of Florida. He's also the Commander of Florida's Emergency Mortuary Operations Response System, or FEMORS. Dr. Bird, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. 
Well, for starters, I wanted to see if you could just give us a view from where you are in Gainesville. Are medical examiners and crematoriums being overwhelmed there too? Uh, not so much here. Um, you know, FEMOR is, is a support system for the Florida medical examiners. Um, and Florida is unique in the country because we have a district medical examiner system. Um, most states either have a, a system that's a, a coroner system, which could be slightly different from a medical examiner, or if they have a medical examiner system, they usually have a state medical examiner system. So it's kind of a statewide system. Mm-hmm. So here in Florida, each of our districts are, are essentially ran independently. Some of them are um, municipally ran, you know, government ran, and others are essentially private and private contractors. So each district and how they handle their casework and how they structure their office uh, you know, is a bit different. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, larger districts with more capacity often have higher populations. And there are some districts that are, are more rural, so they may cover a lot of area, but not a lot of population. So the case surge that the medical examiner districts have seen here in Florida has been um, you know, uh, widely variable. Mm-hmm. Does it make it a little bit difficult for your organization or for the for the FEMORs to respond then, just given the kind of different approach that different counties may have? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's much more localized, right? So there's often not a statewide response. So we have to respond to particular medical examiner districts and, and fulfill the need in their district, you know, based on what their infrastructure is. For this current pandemic, you know, one of the um, first requests for FEMORs response and it's really just to help with um, the processing of the death certificates, you know, the uh, electronic death, death records and the certification of death, mm-hmm. uh, just because it's been an administrative task um, for the medical examiner's offices. You know, the typical role of a medical examiner is to investigate deaths that fall under a particular Florida statute. So not every death is a medical examiner case. And early on in the pandemic, uh, most of the deaths related to, you know, COVID-19 symptoms were medical examiner cases, um, and they didn't transport the bodies in to do the postmortem exams, but they were responsible for doing all the paperwork. Right. So just the surge of paperwork was a problem, and FEMOR sent in our um, death investigators and mortuary officers just to help with the, the paperwork process. And, you know, the other thing that um, there's being limitations on statewide is essentially um, – uh, morgue storage, right? So the refrigerated storage. Mm-hmm. So hospitals, um, which may be dealing with deaths that aren't going to become medical examiner cases, uh, often have very limited storage capacity because you know the, the the human remains are passed to a funeral home fairly quickly. The funeral homes have very limited capacity because they typically don't store bodies very long before there's a funeral service or, as you were talking about, a cremation. Right. So there's not a lot of surge capacity. So the ability to uh, have excess storage is very limited in the state with hospitals and, and funeral homes. And I wanted to ask you more about the uh, medical examiners and their role in certifying deaths from COVID-19 in a bit, but just back to more background on what FEMORS does for folks who aren't so familiar with it. Um, uh, what's the kind of one-liner you, you tell people when you explain what this organization does? Sure. Well, it's Florida's mass fatality team. Uh, so we are responsible for uh, the state's excess capacity to respond to a, a mass fatality incident. And we have enough equipment and resources to respond to uh, up to 500 simultaneous deaths. Hmm. So that reserve capacity is important uh, if you happen to have an incident. 
And instead of the various district medical examiners having to have that capacity, it's just put onto the state to maintain it for the state. Right. And and typically it would be a kind of discrete event, right? Whereas what we're facing now is this kind of evolving situation that hasn't really stopped since March of 2020. So it's a little bit different. Oh, absolutely. It's different in, in duration, uh, as you pointed out. And then uh, a lot of the mass fatality incidents are, of course, uh, very ge- geographically isolated. You know, mm-hmm. um, a transportation incident, for instance, um, the largest wide-scale event, uh, you know, may be an earthquake or a hurricane, um, but still relatively isolated. Uh, this has just been kind of a, a statewide need um, of uh, surge capacity, really. Right. You mentioned a couple of, of generic examples, but it's also been activated. Femors has been activated in the case of the Pulse nightclub shooting, if I'm not wrong, and also during the Surfside building collapse, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's correct. So, like, is there an official activation level that you all are at because of the pandemic and the surge, or is it more just the resources are there, you've been providing them on an as-needed basis? Like, how does that work with the current surge we're experiencing with COVID-19? Well, the response, it gets fairly complicated as far as the response goes. The most typical response model would be for, say, the governor to declare some um, emergency declaration, um, which then authorizes the expenditures of funds. So then local agencies can call in FEMORs without it, you know, without it having to tax their already established budgets, you know, so that the state picks up the bill and mm-hmm. possibly passes that on to the federal government if there's been a presidential declaration. Um, but usually a governor uh, declaration is kind of the minimum activation. However, um, counties and cities within the state can make a request to um, the Department of Health for any more services, uh, that could be equipment or, or personnel resources. Mm-hmm. And essentially, if the Department of Health approves that, um, then you know, FEMORS can respond. But we, we do not deploy on our own accord. Um, our deployments are approved by the Department of Health. So sometimes it's to provide only people uh, to assist. Sometimes it's to provide equipment only. Maybe the jurisdiction has the people. They just don't have the, the tools they need to work with. And then sometimes it's both. Hmm. So just so I'm clear, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that, that uh, FEMORs had helped out with some um, personnel to, to cope with the paperwork early on in the pandemic last year. But have there been requests from county health, uh, county branches of the health department uh, this go around, like in 2021? Has, has FEMORs deployed this year? Um, we have not deployed for the pandemic this year. We've done a lot of consulting, and the requests that have come through have been essentially for uh, extra capacity with refrigerated storage. Mm-hmm. And then we have been able to work with uh, those requested um, to find some solutions for their refrigerated storage needs. Where are those requests coming from in terms of, uh, if you look at the state, is it South Florida, Central Florida? Uh, well, South and Central Florida, yeah, and I think the capacity that has been challenged this far have been um, you know, hospitals, uh, as we already said, and you know, pr- private funeral homes for for storage capacity increases. Mm-hmm. And um, what kind of resources has FEMORS been able to supply to date on, on that front, on the refrigerated uh, storage truck capacity? Yeah, so there we can make uh, requests through DEM to deploy um, refrigerated uh, trucks. Um, that the state has under contract. Uh, also, there's a, a partner with um, FEMORS, which is the Fatality Search and Recovery Team, which is part of the uh, National Guard. 
they have equipment resources uh, in Florida as well, which can assist with refrigerated storage. Um, so there's even some resources within Florida that's outside of Moors that are deployable. Mm-hmm. And, and are they being deployed right now? Not at the moment. Everything has been handled with uh, private contracts so far. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining me, my guest is Dr. Jason Bird. He's the Associate Director of the Maples Center for Forensic Medicine at the University of Florida and also Commander of the Florida Emergency Mortuary Operations Response System statewide. Um, so do you think, Dr. Bird, are we close to, to needing uh, some of, more of those re- resources, some more uh, refrigerator trucks in Florida to you know, meet the surge and the, the, the spike in deaths from COVID-19? It's difficult to tell. You know, the, the case numbers change every day. Uh, the uh, capacity that hospitals and the private funeral homes have every day. So if the current case volume, um, the surge, so to speak, stays at the same rate that it has been for the past couple weeks, uh, I think we'll be okay. But I think if it increases, um, some additional resources will be needed because I think that uh, most uh, hospitals and private funeral homes in the state are kind of their maximum capacity right now. Mm-hmm. Has there been some discussion at the state level, or have you had conversations with some of the um, Department of Health leaders at the county level about whether FEMORS would be activated and whether you would start to deploy some of those resources? Oh, yeah, we have discussions all the time. So we are we are ready uh, and capable of responding. So once the capacity actually has been surpassed, um, you know, FEMORS would certainly respond to that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to come back to the, the certification consideration, and, and, and you talked about FEMORS kind of helping out with that at the start of the pandemic. Last August, also, the governor removed medical examiners from certifying deaths from COVID-19. I'm wondering, what, what does that do for counting those deaths? I mean, does that, does that make it more difficult to actually get an accurate count on who is dying from COVID-19 and who isn't? No, I would say not. I mean, you know, the Florida medical examiner system was, you know, monitoring um, you know, last year. But ultimately, all of that is up to the Department of Health and Office of Vital Statistics um, for that reporting. So I don't think that that shift um, that was made away from, you know, the medical examiner system in Florida being, uh, um, you know, having jurisdiction over those types of cases would affect the statistics on the reporting. Just back to your comment earlier, too, about the fact that each county does think may do things slightly differently. I mean, is like it doesn't necessarily take it away from there being a sort of centralized system of, of, of counting, you know, these fatalities? Oh, no. Yeah. For the death certificate system, um, that is all centrally managed. So all of the counties, um, uh, county medical examiner districts uh, report into the same system on that. And mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's all you know uh, uh, data that is accumulated and reported by the Department of Vital Statistics. What about if somebody dies at home, but there isn't a positive COVID test, or you know the person didn't die at a hospital? Is there some way a medical examiner would be able to, for example, say yes, this death should count from COVID nineteen, or, or be part of that tally? No, it depends. Um, so there are Florida statutes which would govern um, whether that case would be a medical examiner case or not. Um, so if someone found a home unattended, uh, if it's truly an unattended death, then uh, that would become a medical examiner case. But uh, a death at home um, may be under medical care, so there may be a physician uh, who is caring for that individual who may be willing to sign the death certificate. It was uh, an unattended death, but not necessarily unexpected. 
there was a medical history and a licensed physician willing to sign on the death certificate, you know, a type of case like that would not become mm-hmm. a, a medical examiner case. I just wanted to come back too to the issue of you know where we are now in the surge and what kind of impact it's it's having on on medical examiners' offices. What, what's your sense, Doctor Bird, of I guess the level of pressure that uh, medical examiners' offices may be under statewide? Do you get the sense that a lot of them may be kind of on the verge of being overwhelmed? No, not since the ruling changed by the, the the Florida Medical Examiner Commission. So now that they do not have to deal with you know every every COVID death that may occur in their district, they're back to their their normal business um, and applying the Florida statutes for what's a medical examiner case and what is not uh, as normal. So they may have a um, a slight uptick in cases um, that may come their way because of COVID and. Uh, people with underlying conditions that may make them fall into the medical examiner statute. Mm-hmm. But um, for the most part, um, the case volume is actually down a little bit from, from last year for most districts. Right. But I guess there's, there's, there tends to be a, a lag between cases and, and deaths, or at least reported deaths, right? Uh, yeah, a little bit, yep. Just finally, uh, Dr. Bird, what do you think the next kind of few months looks like for as far as you're concerned and, and potentially the work of FEMORS if it were to be activated? I mean, do you, are you anticipating a, a busy fall into winter? Well, um, we, we hope that your mass fatality team isn't busy. You know, that's the, that's the, it's the tool you need to have, sure. uh, but you hope you never use it. Um, so the potential for deployment uh, would probably fall within uh, surge capacity, helping hospitals and, and funeral homes manage their the capacity uh, and, and being able to roll out the type of equipment they would need for some extra refrigerated storage uh, for human remains, uh, which can't be accommodated at the hospital environment, for instance. Um, so that would be the most uh, deployment scenario I would see would be just um, support of the hospital system for what we would call human remains management. Mm. And, and as far as you're concerned at the moment, FEMORS has capacity if needed, if, if called upon. Oh, yes, Absolutely. Dr. Jason Bird is the commander of the Florida Emergency Mortuary Operations Response System. He's also the associate director of the Maple Center for Forensic Medicine at the University of Florida. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from Abe Abariah and Danielle Pryor. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on the NPR One app. I'm Matthew Petty. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.